Tim Hartley, which I have to say in a Welsh accent because you are in Cardiff, uh, the author of new book, The World at Your Feet, which is a search for the soul of football. You never lose faith. The faith is tested, but you never lose it. Has that book yet been read? We're talking two days after it came out. Has it been read? They have indeed. They have indeed. Shall I tell you what people have said about my little book? That's the best way to plug it, I think. Saves you a job. Well, the mastermind himself, the new mastermind, Clive Myrie. Man City fan. He he has to say that every time. He says, this fine book captures the good and the bad, and ultimately what football is really about. Love. Isn't that nice? Thanks, Clive. He's the best. Absolutely the best. And he's a Man City fan, so I don't know. Man City used to be a community club, didn't they? Uh, they were. They were at each other's throats, the fans. But yes, the community they now serve is Abu Dhabi. No one asks Jack Grealish what he thinks of Abu Dhabi's human rights abuses. Just marvel at the way he falls over. Modern football. Modern football. Um, so this book, which you hope is read widely, is it your first book on pitch? It is. My, my uh, very first book was kicking off in North Korea. Uh, and as you can imagine, I've seen a football game in North Korea, because that's in the title. That came from Alova, which is uh, a Welsh publisher. But uh, I, I pitched this to pitch, uh, the second book, The World at Your Feet, and uh, they picked it up, which I'm very grateful for. Lovely people, Paul and Jane Camelin. Paul and Jane, yeah. I'm working with them in uh, my tome about the Youth Cup, which actually kicks off at the end of the month with 250 fixtures. Do you know this in the preliminary rounds? It's like the FA Cup. It's astonishing. Well, a uh, lot of, lot of ground hopping there. Indeed, well, I will, I'll make it easy on my bank balance, but uh, I'll be learning about the history. I'm talking to the likes of Steve Perryman and uh, reading about Michael Carrick. I might see if I can get Carrick on board, because the, the better names, the more likely this book is going to be read, as well you know. But yes, The World at Your Feet, Search for the Soul of Football. The, the situation in Hong Kong with the arrest of journalists and the closure of uh, anti-Chinese or not pro-enough Chinese media, that's very worrying. And especially for football fans, because that's where you go to escape all the political nonsense. Absolutely. And that's what this book is about. I'm using football and visiting different uh, grounds and teams as a way into the politics and to talk about community and society. When I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, in my hotel room, there were pictures um, of the national Hong Kong team and the supporters turning their backs on the Chinese national anthem, which is called the March of the Volunteers. Now, the Hong Kong government was being told by China they had to bring in a new law. If you disrespect the Chinese national anthem, you could face three years in jail. So I went down to Hong Kong Football Club to see uh, what was going on down there. Fascinating to see people, half of them saying, look, let's just concentrate on the football, get out of the Hong Kong League and play with mainland China. The other saying, no, hold on, this is a major issue. The independence of Hong Kong, uh, the existence of um, two cultures, one state, should be maintained. And singing of the anthem, I'd have thought, may have been a compromise which they'd have gone along with. They didn't, and we've seen since then what's happened, that Hong Kong, the whole legal system now is being incorporated into the Chinese one. Any democratic rights seem to be stifled. Uh, And it's all very sad. But it's interesting that football was, if you like, a focal point for uh, an obvious focal point for protest in the early days. And it must have irked President Xi Jinping 
that you had pictures going around the world of Hong Kongers turning their backs on his Chinese national anthem. Now, I'm not saying one thing led to the other, but it was part and parcel, and it did tell a story about what was going on there. All very sad. It's terribly sad. Uh, Equally sad is the fact that one of the biggest clubs in China, um, Suning, have pulled all their funding, so they're in big trouble. And the reason that Lukaku has had to be sold by Inter and Lautaro... Because Suning's money has dried up, because all that great stuff about how China were going to invest into football and bringing all these South Americans over and they don't pay tax. Whereas now, um, that's now stopped because I guess they've taught the Chinese how to play football. Would you think that if East Asia were to host a World Cup, they would win it in the way that I th- Qatar, I think, will surprise us all at the World Cup next year? I don't know why. Nudge, nudge, nose, nose. But, yeah, China, Qatar, these emerging football aristocrats. Didn't South Korea get to the semi-final yeah. of the World Cup when they went shared it with Japan? I, I think you're right. I mean, China's such a big country. There was, a, there was a, an interesting one there. Um, when they wanted to get the Chinese army fit, they decided they were going to use rugby. So they trained 15 rugby players, who then each trained 15 rugby players. Mm. And if you can see the size of the Chinese army, I think there are a million people under arms in China. And if you look at that as a kind of pyramid, I think it's called geometrical multiplication, how they could, if they chose to, get almost everybody playing football there. It would take a few years for them to get up to the standards. But I know from my work with the Welsh Football Trust that we're trying to uh, get courses accredited over there by ourselves. So I think there is an interest there. I don't think they'd be able to do it any time soon um, because they're coming from from a very low base. But yes, definitely, uh, I think that China could become a force in world football. Yeah, something to watch. Uh, I know that you're a civil servant. In a word, Dominic Cummings? (laughs) No, I hope you don't mean I'm Dominic. I was a civil servant for three and a half years, um, and uh, it was fascinating. I, I, um, I, was, I was initially, uh, eventually edged out. I think there was a little element of politicisation of the civil service, which you may find chimes today. And I thought, no, I can't be doing this. So I left and I went to work in um, public affairs. Uh, yeah, the Dominic Cummings thing is very interesting. Who does he support? Um, Marx, Gramsci. Gramsci FC. Yeah, this, this Dominic, I don't like to go into politics, but the amount of people, mainly people of an elder persuasion, uh, who are bewildered about what's going on in Britain today. But Dominic Cummings, his main goal was not to leave the EU, it was to reform the civil service and super forecasting and foie. Um, but yeah, I know some civil servants and you're supposed to be apolitical. And yet you've got different people coming in. I know someone who was in the foreign office working under Philip Hammond. Apparently he was quite a good boss. Uh, and then Boris Johnson came in, uh, and now Dominic Raab's come in. Um, but Ollie Dowden is actually Mum's MP at Hartsmere, um, and Ollie's been very nice to give funding to Boreham Wood and Elstree, and uh, Bushy, where my mum lives, looks great. But it's Dowden who is culture, media, sport, and digital at the moment. By the time this comes out, it might have been a reshuffle. Um, but would you not recommend that Andy Burnham stages a coup? and becomes leader of the Labour Party. He's a scouser who's works in, worked in Manchester, uh, very upwardly mobile, went to Oxford, kind of like a, a mini Blair. I don't know if um, people in the Welsh Valleys would vote for Andy Burnham. I suppose they would. Uh, that's an interesting one. I think he was culture secretary as well, because mm-hmm. I remember speaking to him 
about television um, in Liverpool, oddly enough, many years ago. He is uh, an Arsenal season ticket holder. He is star yes, of the leader of the Labour Party. I, um, I used to play five-a-side with him in London. He's a very good midfielder with a good left foot, though he's had surgery on his knee mm. fairly recently. So he's been out on the Sunday morning run-outs there. Uh, I don't know where Andy plays, but he's an Everton man. Um, his politics... Um, I, I try not to be party political, but I should imagine for the Labour Party, if it doesn't work out for uh, Keir, then Andy would be a good fit. The problem is, of course, he's not a member of Parliament. Mm. Uh, would he find a safe seat? I should imagine, yes, a constituency Labour Party would have him with open arms. And he's got ministerial experience and he's shown leadership in Manchester and he's got charisma. So, uh, yeah, yeah, nice guy. Good. There is a problem with, uh, is it police in Manchester, something... Something is slowly needing to be reformed there. But yeah, Keir, wonderful lawyer, but that's not what the electorate want now. Uh, They want clown. And uh, lawyer versus clown, there's only one winner um, in the way that if you had the opportunity to watch um, a serious murder trial or um, immigration trial or clown, you'd watch clown. But yes, enough of clown. Uh, As someone wisely said, seven kids, three different women... That's not Boris Johnson. That is uh, Benefit Street. Uh, how old is your son now and what's he doing with his life? He's 27 years old. He lives in Belgrade and he's a partisan Belgrade supporter and he plays for uh, a local team there as well. I know about Slavisa Djukanovic, who's currently manager of Sheffield United. And he is partisan until he dies. Cut him, he bleeds red and white, as you would. Black and white. Is, has your son been to the ground yet? He's a season ticket holder, and he's one of the few people who follows them away. The Serbian Premier League is very interesting because the fixtures don't come out like a season long. So, you know, I can contact him. I say, where are you off today then? He says, oh, we got a two o'clock kickoff on a Tuesday afternoon. It's quite bizarre. I was there recently. We played Nobby Sad's uh, second team, and then at the Partizan Stadium, we played, is it DSC from Slovakia in the opening round of the... um, What's the third tier European Conference League? That's the one, Conference League. And uh, it, it, it's a very different game in terms of the spectators there. It was very ugly um, just a few weeks ago. There's a split within the partisan uh, supporters and there was fighting behind me and I had to escort my wife over the seat between partisan fans and partisan fans. Oh Some who support Kucic and the others who don't. Talk about politicisation of football. It, it was quite horrendous. Indeed. Back in, to a, the 19- in about a month's time, it's partisan against Kravena Zedza, uh, Red Star, Belgrade. So that will be an enormously fun fixture. What's that going to be like for Chester? Absolutely amazing. I've been to, I've been to two or three uh, Belgrade derbies. They call it the Eternal Derby. And I write about it in my first book, Kicking Off in North Korea. And I have to say, it was exhilarating. The game had to be stopped twice because the number of flares meant the smoke covered the whole of the Maracanã, which is Red Star Stadium, and the referee couldn't see the ball. But, you know, in this country, there'd have been questions in Parliament, the police would have got involved. There, they stopped the game, they had a drink of water on the sidelines, they waited for the smoke to clear, and the referee just said, here we go again. Quite incredible, quite incredible. There is a lot of material about Eastern Europe, which is... Uh, somewhat hipster, but James Montague's written about it and all his books are in the football library. I wonder if it was our travels you write through the Balkans, which led to Chester moving to Belgrade. 
The name of partisans' ultras are called... The Grobari, the Gravediggers. Ah, were dressed to a man in black. They cranked up the volume. There was a continuous, intimidating, single drumbeat. And then nothing, uh, because you were kettled. This example, kicking off in North Korea, you could have called it kicking off in Belgrade... Are there comparisons to be drawn between watching in Belgrade and Pyongyang? The Pyongyang chapter, which uh, gives the book its title, is just, well, it's anthology-worthy and astonishing. Yeah, there's no comparison, because from that rioter, so that was walking to the game you've just quoted there, uh, when we were trying to get to the game, and the Partizan fans were being marched from their stadium, which isn't very far from Red Star, and the riot police in Serbia, they're kitted up like, you know, Robocop, flares and bottles and a fist fight around the kiosk it was it was that's a few years ago pyongyang as you can imagine completely controlled um by the uh, workers party you go there uh, there are no, no turnstiles no hot dog stands you walk into the uh i think it's the kim Song stadium mm-hmm. and it's silent can you imagine fifty thousand? well i guess if you stood for the minute silence you know what it's like but it was just a very slight murmur all the way through the game. It was as if they didn't want to be there or they were there. A lot of people in military uniform as if they'd been sent there. And I think kickoff was 10 o'clock in the morning because it was the same day as the Pyongyang Marathon. Uh, it was just quite bizarre. No chanting, um, no shouting, uh, no high-fiving when a player came off. And yet in the second half, a military band kicks off playing a song in one side of the stadium. Ten bars in, another band, the other side of the stadium, kicks in. And the competition is between these two bands playing. And it was, it was, honest to goodness, it was a really weird but fascinating experience. It was Pyongyang, that's the capital of North Korea, against Amrok Gang, uh, which is the military outfit. So <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was just a really, <laughs> really weird, really weird experience. <laughs> Competitive brass bands, and it's live. Uh, although, of course, I, the world's best brass band are the Barry Horns, which Absolutely. I learned about because at about 10 o'clock this morning, I went, oh, no, I haven't listened to Resist Phony Encores, Griff Reese's show, which is still on iPlayer on BBC Sounds. And you're there, Tim Hartley, uh, talking about Home Advantage. And it's quite it, the, the ending of the show is great because uh, Griff teams up with a Brazilian musician who's in Wales, and they do I Hope We're Going to Win which is a great song, but it's 25 minutes about the, uh, the weird nature during lockdown of how you would pump crowd noise into a stadium. Uh, and you talk about the home advantage, which has completely gone. Certainly on Merseyside, you've, you've read about Liverpool and Everton having their worst seasons for years at home. Yeah, I, I got two chapters on this uh, in the book, Football Without Fans, anyone. And that's when I went to Cardiff's last uh, game of... The season before last, let me get this right now, um, we beat Hull handsomely and it was during lockdown and I was reporting from there and it was really weird because you could hear the manager and you could hear the players shouting um, and there was no crowd noise. And I did some homework on this then and in the European game, home advantage disappears. And this is uh, because you're not influencing the referee. So where you did have a clear advantage, statistically, that almost disappears. I think it's you win 36% uh, as a home team, 34% the away team win, and those figures are completely different if you've got a crowd there. The reason being that you're influencing um, the linesman 
and of course the referee. So that was that was really interesting to actually see it for yourself there. Uh, and I'm so glad we got fans back at football now. Well, I'm but, waiting uh, on a, I'm waiting on a ticket for Watford Villa, which is the Graham Taylor Memorial, and the um, Watford fans who actually formed eight years ago, the 1881 movement, whom you may have seen, they formed because at Wembley, Watford fans were not making any noise. And that could be the reason why we didn't go up that season. But they've said, uh, we're not doing a banner, we're not doing a TIFO, bring your scarves, we're going to shout and scream for Graham because uh, Villa and Wolves uh, are up in the top division. So there are, uh, how many is that? Um, six Graham Taylor derbies this season. And... Uh, we admire, we admire GT a lot. I don't know if you ran into GT in your time at Supporters Direct. No, I didn't, but you get the impression he's a thoroughly decent man. And it's great, as you say, that you can come together, fans from different clubs, you know, uh, and, and actually celebrate uh, the life and, and, um, and, and what some of these pl- uh, players and, and managers, of course, have given us. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be amazing on Saturday. We've got Saar, Cucho and Joao Pedro, three very young strikers, Senegal, Colombia and um, Brazil. And this is completely different from when we had Nicky Wright and Alan Smart up front in 99 when we beat Bolton at the old Wembley. Um, Talking about Cardiff, the Cardiff anecdote, which I always tell, which is I was a Spurs fan when I was younger. We would go to White Hart Lane. We went to the stadium, the Millennium, in 2002, and it rained all the way there and all the way back and all the way during the game, and it was proper Welsh, and Tottenham lost, and it was a horrible day. So horrible that I had thought Robbie Savage had played in that game for at least 10 years after it. Turns out he didn't. And I'll tell you what, tell you what, Robbie Savage, very smart man. Yes. What I like about Savage in the early days of his being a second voice on things like Five Live was he did tend to get you into the dressing room. There's a great anecdote that Andy Legg, who played a couple of times for Wales, tells. I think it was um, Wales against Italy in Bologna. We lost 4-0. And Bobby Gould was on his way out then. And uh, Andy Legg told this story at a social fundraiser for Gore, the Welsh Football Supporters Charity. And he said, at half-time, um, Bobby comes into the dressing room and he says, guys, um, I've decided that at the final whistle, I'm going to announce that I'm standing down. And Robbie Savage jumps up and punches the air. He goes, yes! <laughs> I can just imagine this happening. Whether it's an apocryphal story, I don't care. I just think it's a great story. I agree. And... Uh, yeah, but Rob, Robbie, he, he divides opinion that, hey, isn't it great that we don't have some bland, middle-of-the-road, non-committal, non-controversial people? You know, we need, we need more of that. Yes, I was listening to the Wales games with John Hartson, uh, who my admire because he defeated cancer. So anyone who does that, and it doesn't matter if you hit people as a player, or to an extent. But the modern-day Welsh team, I like to describe Aaron Ramsey of Juventus. Great, like John Charles. You've got Welshmen at Juventus, by the way. Um, but he is a postmodern footballer. You never hear anything bad about Aaron Ramsey, except when he gets injured, people die, or when he scores, people die. But the nature of the modern-day Welsh team, under the guidance at the moment of the great former Watford captain Rob Page, how about that? Obviously, Denmark had the home advantage and the, the Ericsson stuff, but... I think you'll qualify for Qatar. Are you going to get your tickets? No, that's a really interesting one. Um, we've discussed human rights in Abu Dhabi and the like. You know, I've, I've read conflicting reports about what happened in Qatar. I mean, people have died building those stadiums. Um, the human rights issues wide, widely in that country are not particularly good. Yeah, workers get their passports everything. taken away from them, allegedly. That's right. But that 
that's the trouble. You read another report then, and they say actually some of these deaths um, were um, suicides or they weren't actually on the stadiums. Um, and, you know, we're making headway with, 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 with human rights. That, you can hear from my voice, I'm trying to find some really feeble defence of going to Qatar if Wales get there. If Wales get there. They shouldn't. So it's a really tricky one. I mean, you say we should. Well, you know, the trouble with Wales is we haven't got the luxury like England have of having two players for every position. We need the full team, fully fit, playing at their best, and then for the opposition to be slightly ropey. Once you get to Qatar or to Brazil or to Russia or wherever, I mean, Thierry Henry said this, uh, the World Cup is easier to get up the group than the Euros because the opposition, you're going to have one raggedy team in there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I never thought I'd see my team in the Premier League in an FA Cup final, a League Cup final. Once that was achieved, I thought, well, I'll never see Wales in a, in a major finals. I've seen them twice now. World Cup, I, I, I could after Qatar die happily, you know, that Wales have been in the World Cup finals. Indeed, which will be the first time since 58. I was going to say something horrible about Kiefer Moore, but then I remembered who I was talking to. This is Wales is number 13, big tall bloke at the front. He is, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, a brilliant championship player. We had this very same discussion last night on oh, the comprehensive victory over Sutton United in the Carabao Cup. Three goals to two. I'm afraid they scored another one, you see, just before the end. Uh, and Kiefer... I don't think he gets enough credit because people think, oh, he's very tall, so he's your target man. Well, he is quite good with his feet, and he'll come back and do some defending for you, so I'm a great fan of him. There is a stream, and someone's written about this, so there are some players who, championship players, they step up. You think of people um, like Chris Gunter, who's, uh, you could say, an average player, you know, but when he plays for Wales, he steps up a gear. And Kiefer is a similar player like that. I, 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 I'm a great fan of Kiefer's. I'm so glad that no one's come in for him from Cardiff. No. Because if they on the table, they might go for him. You can say what you like about Kiefer. I don't care because he's arsed. Well, he's you have Kiefer Moore. We've got Troy Deeney. Every time Troy's name comes up, I say he's got a book coming out at the end of September called Redemption. Look, we know the Troy Deeney story. It's just nice that his foundation will get some money from the book deal. You've seen, you must have seen lots of great number nines. Who's the best player never to play for Cardiff City? Either home or away. Uh, and you think, well, this player could be the next Fred Keener tick. Um, and by the way, James Leeton's memoir of Fred Keener is in the football library. Um, I don't know much about Fred, but he seems like Cardiff's greatest ever player. Do you know what? I'm going to hate myself for this. It's because I read his two autobiographies, and I, I can't say I've warmed to the man, but I love the player. It's Roy Keane. And I don't know whether I, I, I see him similar to Graham Kavanagh, the Irishness, um, the, 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 the chiselled looks, uh, the hard man, you know, uh, the fact that he can pick out a pass as well. Uh, and I'm going to make myself unpopular by saying that. But that's, you know, that's, that, that midfield general sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Those two books, by the way, are really worth reading. Yeah, uh, Eamon Dunphy did the first one, Roddy Doyle with the second one. I do have both in the football library, the expurgated and the unexpurgated versions of the first one with the incriminating, take that, you Alfie Harland. It's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. And a character. And when I was looking to have a security guard to guard the football library, I wanted someone to go, I'll see you in there. I'll see you in there. So I would love you just to come up to the football library and go, there's only one, Mick McCarthy. See if he cracks a smile. Because he's lightened now. My court jester at the library is going to be Micah Richards. He's going to be doing children's parties and the like. 
Uh, have you seen the Michael Richards Roy Keane bromance blossom? No, I haven't. Is it is it is it worthy of? Uh... It's it's Sky Sports trying to get some viewers. They're trying to make Michael Richards the funny guy and Roy Keane the straight man. They're trying to make it happen, but that's to sell because they can't make people. They can't attract people for the football anymore. They have to attract them for the TV people. It's like Five Live putting Chris Sutton on. They don't want to, but they know people will listen to it. You say in your book, Kicking Off in North Korea, which is in the football library as well, your mum went to Cheltenham Ladies College. I took her there when she was just recovering from cancer, and it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And uh, as we were driving away from there, she was, it, was, it was lovely to hear her reminiscences where she'd been. And it is a posh school, don't get me wrong. I went to a, a comprehensive in um, Pontypris. Um, not that there's any, you know, thing yep, wrong with that. same difference. But as I'm coming away from there... I drove her back, you know, um, down to, to, to Barry, where she was living then. And she said, it's all wrong, though, isn't it, Tim? I said, what's up, Mum? She said, Cameron and all that lot, you know, the privilege and what I had. And what was interesting was that school, they emphasised its business about independence of mind and that. So they, if you like, educated her to say what I had was a privilege, but it was also wrong. And I rather liked that. Mm. Um, the most amazing graduate from my school is Riz Ahmed, who went on a scholarship, and he's been very critical of what's gone on in independent education. Similarly, there are people involved in the Muslim Council of Great Britain. Um, Boris Johnson's number two, Alan Duncan, was head boy. Um, my friend Yath is now involved in corporate partnerships at Formula One and doing a lot of work on green energy in Formula One. Good luck to him. But he's a smart kid. And then you've got me... Uh, with the football library, talking to people who have written books about football, such as The World at Your Feet, which is out now on pitch. I just wanted to ask you about your Four Minute Mile book and your Beaching Reforms book. Did you prefer writing those history books to the memoir-filled football books, or are they different disciplines? I'm not sure I actually wrote those two books. That's good, because, because I did look them up and thought, maybe I've got the wrong Tim Hartley. So... I will. There is another Tim Hartley who I've been corresponding with. He's in Australia under lockdown, very strict lockdown, and our emails get mixed up. He's a great guy. He prefers Aussie rules, I think, but he sends <laughs> my emails back to me. Um, so we have this strange correspondence, and we have done for more than a decade, of him sending uh, uh, my missed emails. So I don't think it's him either, so I'd like to find my namesake. Wow. Here's the book I want to do, is All the Tim Hartleys in the World. Because Tim Hartley in Australia refuses to send Tim Hartley in America um, his emails on to him because he says he's a, he's a right-wing gun-toting lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> and there are two other Tim Hartleys. One played rugby league in the north of England professionally. And Tim Hartley was also the international stylist for Vidal Sassoon. So you've just given me, Johnny, by mistakenly think I've written the other books an idea for my next book, which would be The Great Tim Hartleys of the World. I'd be writing it, not one of The Great Tim Hartleys of the World. Wait, uh, you're welcome. Um, but how are you going to have time to do that? What do you spend your days doing these days? I, I do a bit of a consultancy and training, which is quite interesting, media training, because I spent more than a decade with the BBC as a reporter. Um, and uh, I do some work for a, a, an agency in Amsterdam, um, which sort of analyse trends across the world, which is quite interesting. Mm. So that's online. Um, and there's a lot of voluntary stuff going on around here. Um, I'm director of the Cooperative News, 
which you should read. You can get the online version internationally, which is based in Manchester. Really good talking about all the good work cooperatives are doing across the world. Welsh Football Trust, and I'm a magistrate sitting on the uh, Cardiff bench. Ooh. So there's plenty occupied. I, there is one uh, person I've spoken to who was the secret magistrate. I've been sworn to secrecy. I don't know if you've read that book. I've read the Secret Barristers book. Uh-huh. I've also read the Secret Footballers book. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating business. I would advise anybody to have a look at being a magistrate because you do get to understand how society and your neighbourhood and your city or town actually works. Yeah, magistrate courts is the, the, the very first summons court, which is basically drug charges... Uh, rent, not repaying rents or uh, mortgage payments and um, minor misdemeanours, petty theft. 95% of crimes go through the magistrate's court. Yeah. If you can't sentence more than six months, if you think they deserve more than six months, they have to go up to the Crown Court. So we would have the first demands on murders, rapes, robberies, arsons and the like. Uh, and then for lower cases like assault, um, uh, actual bodily harm, uh, grievous bodily harm, you would then consider what your sentence would be. And if you don't think your sentencing powers are strong enough, you send them up to the Crown Court, to the judge and jury. Yes. And that, that's where Judge Rinder goes, right? Crown Court. That's the man. But one of the things you do do, you set this charity up, Goal, which is G-O with a circumflex L. Um, and if you go to goal.wales, uh, you'll be able to find out and also donate. I'm going to make a donation today. Set up in 2002, you started in Baku uh, and you help underprivileged kids wherever Wales play. Congratulations on hitting 20 years next year. What has been your favourite goal-related trip? Wow, we've done so many of them. We've been active in more than 40 countries. The idea was twofold when we went to Baku. If you remember the start of the 2000s, uh, Euro World Cup, some countries... Supporters were running riot, you know, throwing these plastic chairs and fighting and screaming. We thought, hang on, we're not all like that. So when we went to Baku, it was a loose group of us. We just decided to raise money and go and visit some children's homes. First of all, to say thank you to these countries who are such such welcoming hosts. And also to try to raise the status of football supporters. Um, and it was a privilege, actually, to go back there during the Euros. Uh, it was our fifth visit to uh, yeah. John. And then, um, so we went to amazing, there's a mobile dental unit we supported that are street children and children's homes there, and they don't get to go to a dentist. So we paid for a month's upkeep, if you like, of this, it's literally a dentist surgery on wheels, which goes round and sorts them out. And, uh, you know, then in, we went to Rome, and we went out of the city, and we saw it was a summer football camp for underprivileged children. Really interesting because they had a private school, all in Real Madrid shirts, in partnership with Real Madrid on one pitch. Then the other kids, a little bit more raggedy, who we were supporting on another pitch. It just made you think, you know, why we're doing this so that everyone does get a little bit of support. So those are just a couple of the things. But, I mean, we've bought sports shoes for uh, every child in a children's home in Latvia. Um, we've painted a home in, in Belgrade, you know. In, in Belgrade also, I remember going to a hypermarket. I said, what do you want? They said, oh, what we really need is a couple of sinks. So to drive out and get a couple of sinks for them and bring them back. <laughs> whatever these children's homes need, whatever the charities need, we'll try to help them. And people are really supportive. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it, it, it really does, you know, make the trip that we're actually giving a little bit, little bit of Wales. We're leaving a little bit of Wales behind, we like to think. 
I think that is the best way in the way that some, sometimes when a little bit of England is left behind, uh, it just doesn't look great. I'm really looking forward, and you follow Wales away, which is why we're talking about this. I'm really looking forward to when England fans go to Hungary and really learn what thuggery is. Because there are certain, <laughs> there are certain English supporters who I think shouldn't really... Well, Roy Keane would not let them in the football library, to put it politely. <laughs> there is none of that with Wales. None of that. Because you sing and you make, you've got the Barry Horns. There's no terrible element of the Welsh support. You make us look terrible. Stop it. I don't, I don't want to gloss over it. I mean, we, we held, uh, me and a guy called Russell Todd from Podcast Pill Droid, uh, we organised uh, a, a week-long, before the Euros, Export Walgorch, the exposition of the Walgorch, and it was all about the social good and community good of football. But one of the sessions was by Dr Penny Miles of Bath University, a big Wales supporter, and she'd done 17 interviews about women's experiences following Wales. Not all good, I have to tell you. So, yes, we like the Barry Horns. Yes, we're pushing ahead with the, uh, with the um, charity work there. But there are still some, you know, cavemen, for want of a better yeah. word, following Wales. It's, it's not as prevalent, as you say, as England. And I don't want to sing this. It's not a competition here. We want to cut it out wherever we go. Um, yeah, we're, we're ever mindful that football, following football, is just fantastic. Let's keep it that way so that everyone can enjoy it. This is the great challenge. How do you integrate women and families into the men's game? The women's game, which kicks off in September again. I might go to a lot of those games because although the quality of football doesn't touch the men's game... Um, the atmosphere is tremendous and I'm lucky that I'm very near the London Bees. Watford are actually playing against Liverpool at the beginning of September at the Vic. I don't know if Cardiff women are, are doing well. Are they like the third team? Yeah, there are two Cardiff teams, Cardiff City ladies and Cardiff's women's team. Oh, I know this. I do know this, yes. Yeah, but it's quite inspirational. I went to the... Um... England-Wales women's match at uh, Newport, Rodney Parade there. If you remember, Wales had to win, they didn't, and um, and got through this as But what was excellent was that there was a little sort of on the fan zone, but outside Rodney Parade in the car park on a bit of grass there, there were little mini goals up. So men and women bringing their daughters, particularly to see Wales, had a little kick around beforehand and inside the ground, the high pitched voices, and it was fantastic to see girls getting it and being allowed to get it. And we need more of that. We need this to, to sort of crisscross. And we have got um, Walgorkham Anoa, the, the, the Red Wall of the Women, uh, which is very good. And there's a, a good group of uh, committed women who are following Wales and looking after each other. Not all of them. My wife comes with me and has done for, for you know, decades. But if you're on your own as a woman, it can be quite intimidating. Ooh, yeah. And we need to keep support. I'll give you another little example. Um, students in Cardiff, women students, don't like walking home to the halls of residence or flats on a Saturday night. So the Cardiff University uh, football team said, here's our numbers. We will walk you home safely if you want. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely that they're saying, we as football team are going to actually do our bit for our fellow students. So there's all this good and benefit. We haven't really touched on the community work that football can do, walking football for the over 50s, the mental health work that it does in helping people, you know, rehabilitation of offenders. Football is such a fantastic conduit um, for Good. There we go. I've had my say. Well, a very wise man has written in his book, Kicking Off in North Korea, football is an important viewfinder for society as a whole. I might emblazon that in the Andy Holt Lounge, which is the kind of revolutionary area 
where uh, people can just discuss football. The Andy Holt Lounge, because it has good morning and by the way, on the three walls as you come in. And that's uh, it's got coffee table books as well. Uh, I was distracted momentarily by a partisan Belgrade ladybird to my right, a black and red ladybird just flapping on the window, which is a nice sign. Uh, and I like how you dedicate the book to Helen, who humours both you and your son. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> How many years have you been married now? It must be over 30. 1989. What's that? Yes. In, in new money. That's 20, is that not 33 years? It is. 33 years this summer. Wow, Mazel tov. And yet, yes, she humours you. Uh, has she enjoyed watching the football that you've been watching over the last year? She says to me, of course, that her dad was taking her down Cardiff City while my dad was taking me down the rugby at Cardiff. Uh-huh. So she's always one up on me. And she also says that she came of age as a girl when Charlie George did something to her and she didn't quite understand. So, you know, I think she should write her personal histories. Not too personal, you understand. But uh, she, no, no, she is, she's, a, she's a big football fan. She sits next to me down the city. And now that she's uh, not working anymore, she comes on the Wales trips which is great too. Uh, and where are you going in September? Where are the away games for the Qatar World Cup? Is it Latvia? Uh, no, it's not. We've got um, a friendly against Finland and then we've got uh, a double header, Czech Republic, and then up to Tallinn. And we've got two home games there. We're not going to be able to go to Belarus, which has been moved from Minsk to Kazan. Pity, because mm-hmm. uh, I saw, I think I saw Ryan Giggs scoring a 2-1 victory in Minsk in 2001 and it's a fascinating city but again do you want to go to um lukashenko's um minsk very difficult these yes um so yeah we're hoping to have a a, a good bit of traveling coming up with wales i hope so too i hope you get out there because it's been far too long and you couldn't after all follow go to baku um and in some ways you couldn't go to copenhagen but that's a relief but I haven't even mentioned how you six Brazilian cities in three weeks, but that's in Kicking Off in North Korea, the first book. Follow-up is The World at Your Feet, which is out now. Finally, can you recommend a football book about a Welsh player that you would pick off the shelves of the football library? Because there are plenty there. We've got Neville Southall, we've got Craig Bellamy, we've got Ryan Giggs, but that's like a picture book. <laughs> yeah, well, but picture hasn't been put into that book yet mm, no i've been collecting my football books and sharing them with, with russell for when we hopefully have an, a face-to-face expo and i'm going to sell them off for charity and one which i've only dipped into is mickey thomas's book mm. mickey thomas of course wrexham a very colorful character a great after dinner speaker i'm told though i haven't heard him so i'm going to go for that book there but there was another one which i put and i've forgotten what the title is it's about the summer beast uh, Man City. Yes, a, um, uh, hang on, I do know the title because I've got it. It's Colin Schindler's book. That's the one. Um, Absolutely. It takes you from the days of, you know, um, signing professional forms and not much money to the heights of, um, you know, the, the Georgie Best era then. And then his son then who gets, you know, he's also up and then he's, he gets into trouble with the tabloids and the like. It's just a brilliant picture over generations of how football's uh, developed from, from, from a one family's perspective. Those would be my two pickouts at the moment. But of course, you know, I would have obviously say The World at Your Feet by Tim Harkey is a damn good read. Yes, and so much better than Father's Sons and Football, which is the Colin Schindler book. And uh, I wish you all the... Let's be honest. Yeah. Well, one is uh, about the soul of football 
and the other is fathers, sons and football. Uh, Tim Hartley, have a wonderful rest of summer. Enjoy, well, we've had the Lions. Um, the Rugby League World Cup's been kicked to next year. Good luck in the Six Nations next year, I suppose. Or are there autumn internationals? There probably will be, won't there? Yeah. Johnny, it's been a pleasure. The Ulch, uh, have a wonderful rest of your summer. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Shh!